Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. Episode 159, Noble Waffling. In 1484, as Richard became more and more concerned about the possible invasion that he was expecting from Henry, he began to start to prepare the country for it. In South Wales, messengers were set up along routes to quickly pass alerts via signal lamps across various hills. The whole idea being, of course, to act as a way to react quickly should a signal come saying, we need help. This meant that the whole country sat on a political hair trigger. I suspect the day-to-day people were less concerned about the greater problems of their government, especially in those areas where the touch of crown authority was probably pretty light. As well, even the authority in Wales at this time was very loose, as the person officially placed in charge by Richard didn't even live there at that point in time. Historians have contended that from this point on, Henry must have known that his time for action was exceedingly short. The longer he put off invasion, the more likely that support would coalesce around Richard, and importantly, his foreign patrons would grow increasingly tired of this pretender. Knowing all of this, Henry started to send letters to friends and supporters in Wales, talking about how he would return to the Principality of Wales and people of the same, to their dearest liberties, delivering them of such miserable servitude as they had piteously long stood in. That is a pretty open appeal for support, in a way that may have hit at the heart of the problems in Wales. Bards and poets returned to lauding the return of this bull of Anglesey during the spring and summer of 1485. Poet Lewis Glynclothy asked Jasper how long he planned to take to return in one poem, seemingly showing a sign of desperation being expressed by these bards. The stage was being set for Henry to use his familial links to press for his case with his native people. Because of this, and because of the loyalty that still remained for the Tudors in Wales, Richard was furiously trying to stop any kind of landing in South Wales. The king set his supporters up in castles up and down the Bristol Channel, trying to watch for any movement by Henry on the coast. Richard also began to levy his nobles for loans and supports both financially and in men as he prepared for the inevitable. Meanwhile, Henry continued to lobby the French government through the beginning of 1485 to fund his invasion. To that end, the government had given him some assurance that they would help, but no actual money or men were forthcoming. Because of the intelligence Richard had in the French court, he knew that just as well. Some in England began to believe that Henry had lost his opportunity and that no support was coming from France. The King of France, Charles VIII, was at present too preoccupied with the issues within his own country to start funding expeditions elsewhere. Because of this and the general animosity to Richard, appeals for money from the crown mostly fell on deaf ears. The nobility seemingly either felt the king would not be able to pay back the loan or would be deposed, so would be in no place to pay back the loan, as a new king would likely feel no obligation to pay off the old king's debts. It's a sign of how little regard Richard was held that even his threat of 
in quotes, a French invasion would do little to create the desired support, nor would lavish praise that would be then honored upon these same people. In fact, if anything, it continued to keep them very much not in his camp. Meanwhile, in Henry's area of France, the winter of 1485 saw defections of some of the Yorkists who had come to him previously. This happened for two reasons. One, Richard offered pardons to any of the defectors who returned to the fold. In some cases, they had to pay as much as a thousand pounds, but nonetheless, they could be granted a pardon. And two, many in the Yorkist side of Henry's camp were disturbed by the arrival of Oxford as a pro-Lancastrian, someone who was well and truly in the midst of the Lancastrian cause fighting on their behalf. And the declaration of Henry's descent via his Lancastrian roots gave him even more reason for the Yorkists to be nervous. Much of these problems could have been resolved if Henry was able to complete his marriage to Princess Elizabeth, but as she remained in Richard's England, the linkage to the Yorkist side was at best thinly made. Without his queen, Henry was a Lancastrian with no vital link to his Yorkist allies. For many, just being the enemy of my enemy was not enough, especially when that enemy was now trying to woo you back to his side, a side you fought for for decades in some cases. The seriousness of these defections reached their height when the Marquis of Dorset, Thomas Gray, son of Elizabeth Woodville, sought to escape back to England to seek a pardon from Richard. Hearing of his flight, Henry's men were able to find him before he left France and, in quotes, convince him to return. Let's be honest, they probably forcibly convinced him. As spring returned to Britain, it was obvious that the nobility on both sides of the conflict were not in a good, trustworthy place. In the midst of all of this, Queen Anne died. On March 16th, after a lengthy battle with an illness, she passed away on a day of an eclipse. This was seen, as it had been from time immemorial, as a omen, and on this occasion a very bad one for the crown. Shortly after, and shortly before, unspoken rumors began to fly that Richard was now looking to take his niece, Princess Elizabeth, as his queen. While it would obviously deprive Henry of his Yorkist marriage, it would obviously be seen by some as completely wrong and immoral. Certainly the Tudor side pushed this observation, and there were some questions among academics about whether Elizabeth herself was in favor of being Richard's queen. Some evidence points to her reaction being positive to the idea, but all of it being circumstantial, we have no real knowledge. What we do know is it was not just after-the-fact propaganda that this was being bandied about, as Richard had to openly declare that he would not marry Elizabeth. Instead, attempts were made to have Richard marry one of the lines of Lancastrians that were floating around in Europe, which would then help heal the old wound while cutting out the lesser line of Tudors from their links to the throne. First, he offered to marry a Portuguese princess, and then a Spanish one, both of whom were descended from John of Gaunt, the originator of the Lancastrian line. Richard would go as far as to try to marry Princess Elizabeth off to one of these Portuguese princes, and 
this would also doubly damn Henry as he would be unable to either marry into the Orcus cause nor claim that he was the head of the Lancastrian side. Of course, this idea would never reach fruition as other events passed these negotiations by, but it was obvious Richard hoped to circumvent any attempt by Henry or his supporters to create his Tudor Rose, as it would of course be called later. Henry himself was concerned about what all this meant. His chroniclers said that he felt it in his stomach, as the unease of what was going on played on him. The loss of Elizabeth would likely sink his tenuous hold on the Woodville support, as most of their reason for being in Henry's camp in the first place was because they were wanting their family reinstated. A suggested alternative of marrying into the Herbert family was at best a poor solution and one that realistically never could become strong enough to relink those two families. Losing this link to their name value would put him in a bad place at exactly the wrong time. He apparently confessed all this to Oxford as his one Lancastrian ally who would not be willing to pass all this on to the Woodville camp. His misgivings likely forced him into action. His hand was now needed to be ready, or he must act before Richard could ruin his chances, in other words. With the arrival of spring, much of the flailing fortunes of Henry were slowly starting to change. He had found himself with a boon. Reginald Bray, who had been recently pardoned by Richard in one of those many pardons he offered, arrived in Henry's camp after gathering financing to help pay for mercenaries to help Henry. The fact that Bray was a servant to Margaret Beaufort shows that while under house arrest, she was still able to influence things in favor for her son. It was suggested at some point during the later spring, Princess Elizabeth was sent north to await her fate, be it married off to a prince in Portugal or something else. In one source, it was even suggested that she was first sent to the home of Lord Stanley, a home that of course included Margaret Beaufort, who must have smiled at having a chance to influence her would-be daughter-in-law. While there's no other sources for this story outside of this one, it is tempting to think of just what this would mean. There was also suggestions made that uh, Elizabeth was at this point very unhappy with Richard, be it because her erstwhile love had cast her off, or because she didn't want to be married off to a Portuguese prince. Nobody really can say one way or the other. As spring stretched on, the king started to see more trickles of defections to Henry as more and more of his southern lords started to disagree with his support of the northerners, and it had been something of an issue since the start of his fated protectorate. Northern lords were given a strong percentage of control in the south. As they were familiar and loyal to Richard, he continued to reward them. This left his southern nobles feeling isolated and angry. It's what drove them into Buckingham's camp in the first place, and were now slowly starting to convince them to assist Henry. Making it worse was that the Northmen were, who were ruling were doing so both as judges and jury over these so-called treasonous lords, and they were the ones who carried out their executions. Again, this creates more resentment as the pardons of the past turn into punishments of the present. 
The nobles, who'd been waffling into one camp or another for various reasons, were finally starting to stiffen into a resolve. And those who might have initially returned to Richard in the past began to slowly show up for Henry once again in France. While it was not all of them, there was enough that Henry could see that their bleeding if you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts that he had been suffering due to the Woodville's wobble had staunched. He was instead in a position to move proactively forward, and it was at this point he seriously began his preparations in earnest. Helping Henry in this situation was the collapse of the Duke of Orleans' rebellion against the French court. Finally, the internal threats that had divided the court of Charles VIII were at an end. King Charles as well began to place in Henry the power of kingship, he was recognized as they marched as the rightful king of England. When he was in a procession, he was referred to as the Prince of England. Henry was held up as a king in exile rather than the pretender he obviously was. Most egregious of all was that the French, at least internally, called him the son of Edward IV, which was beyond a lie and nothing more than a delusion. It made supporting him look even more noble, but the lie was so obvious it likely rankled Yorkist supporters of Henry. Henry himself was said to be uncomfortable with the suggestion, and especially considering his rather proud family lineage as a Lancastrian and a Welshman. The pressure on the French now 
was instead of internal became more external as the Bretons and Burgundian forces led by the Burgundian ruler the Habsburg Archduke Maximilian were putting pressure on the French. The idea that now the English could arrive to truly tip the scales once and for all must have focused the French in their support of Henry like nothing else could. A divided or even allied English crown would be exactly the thing Charles needed to fight back against his European opponents. So the court and nobility found the money to get what was needed to push Henry onto his destiny. As Henry gathered military help in France, the king arrived in Nottingham in June to raise forces of his own. He knew that he needed to fend off an invasion which seemed more and more likely by the day. The return to the Nottingham Castle at the center of England meant that Richard was now at the hub of his kingdom. In Nottingham, on June 21st, Richard reissued his call to the people of England to continue to refute Henry and his traitors. The call was similar to what had been sent a year previous when Henry was in no real position to invade. Once again, it framed it as a French conspiracy to put their pawn on the throne rather than a rightful heir or even a pretender, something to stir English subjects to repulsion and national pride. Commissions were then sent out across England, not so much in Wales, to gather men ages from 15 to 60, to the defense of the king. They were mustered for inspection at the site of their county seats, and to say that it was a ragtag allotment of armor and age groups I think would be underplaying it. Knights and nobles obviously were very well equipped, and then the more common people who in some cases were showing up with little more than knives and bow and arrows. There was a collection, of course, of various implements and little in the way of armed protection for the commoners. A chain shirt would have been an expense that few could have afforded, let alone the increasingly complex and plated armor that was exploding in popularity among the nobles in Europe at this nascent beginning of the gunpowder age. While the mechanisms of gathering forces began in England, one aspect which might have been ignored was that the English had gone for almost a generation without participating in wars in Europe. It meant that they were not really practiced in the heavier parts of warfare of that age, the massive encampments, the ranging armies that would have to carry on sieges. These things which had been so common in previous generations in England now were something of a lesser-known commodity. Keep in mind that most of the battles in the War of the Roses were fought in open warfare they were rarely pitched battles of days on end or the massive sieges that we had going on during even the hundred years war most of this is something that none of them were familiar with and none of them had ever dealt with before the war of the roses of course had ended for the most part in 1474 while obviously this is still classified as part of it most of the actual fighting up until the Battle of Bosworth had happened a decade previously, and so very few of the common people would have even been involved or even really have any experience fighting. So if they didn't have it, how many nobles would? In fact, there was comments and, and discussion points about this amongst the English themselves as the king had to call out a few 
of his own people for basically ignoring the practices that they were supposed to be doing in training to go play dice or to play cards or to go shoot and hunt deer in the forest. All these things that were of no use to the king in the defense of his realm. And of course, fewer still even understood how to fight a professional army with professional training and experience. Henry, on the other hand, with French money, of course, had been collecting both from them and from those loyal to him. They were able to purchase mercenaries who, of course, had long experience built up in wars that had been raging throughout Europe over these years. These professionals, of course, were driven by money, to be sure, but they had something that their English counterparts did not. Long experience, well-drilled training, and an understanding of the warfare of their time period. Henry Tudor, as he finalized his final preparations for invasion, did so knowing that he had 4,000 experienced and well-paid men who would be the vanguard for his assault on Richard, and the value to him of this cannot be overestimated. The advantage it would give him in the fighting to come would also be something to behold. Now, they only had to settle on a landing spot as the summer of 1485 arrived in earnest. There was only one place that Henry Tudor could land, realistically. One area that would give him the initial support and loyal following which he could rely upon. One that he could appeal to for various reasons, for as a Welsh descendant of noble Welsh lines linked to the princes of old, it gave him an advantage, something that he could begin his invasion not in England as an English king, but in Wales as a British king, returning like Arthur of old. Make no mistake that Tudors knew the value of propaganda, and what better way to win loyalists than to return a Lancastrian Welshman to his native land in preparation for taking down a in quotes, Saxon king. How could the Welsh resist that call? And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at, at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you'd like to support the podcast in any way, you can do so via our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you everybody for listening. I hope you're having a great start to your year. And uh, no matter when or where you're listening, I hope you have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more info, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.